welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And today, my guest is Mike Lawrence, who has a book called 70, The 70-Year Reverse Construction Thesis in Christians Before Jesus. Now, you are a mythicist, but you're in your own kind of in your own camp where you have your own completely independent theories on why you, you came to this conclusion. Also, what what really what I really um was was thankful when I read your when I read through this book was your honesty about not being an expert and saying, look, I don't I'm not fluent in Greek. I'm not I don't know Hebrew. I'm not an academic. But here's what I think. Here's my theory. Anyone who can come out and say that is good in my book. And I, I, I appreciate that. Like we're all we all we all love history. We all have mm -hmm. our we, we this is stuff that we, we're doing and uh, we have our own opinions and theories. And so there's nothing to me. It's like, who cares? Let's 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 dig into this. Let's explore these topics and not try to say, oh, they these academics, they they don't know. I know better than them or or they're all trying to keep me pushed down. And, you know, it's a big cabal against me and all this stuff where you get that a lot from a lot of mainstream mythicists. And we might we might get into that topic as well. Um, but yeah, I want to get into your theory and let's, let's go from there and yeah, tell us about the book and tell us about the, uh, and definitely want to hear about the feedback you get, especially from the mythicist. Cool. Yeah. Whatever reason they're, they're, you're not welcomed in that, in that club for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And yeah, as you say, I, I'm an independent researcher, um, but as we discussed uh, a little while ago, I, my reasons for being interested in this is not purely personal interest. It's because I come from the UK and uh, people in America might not be aware that we have laws in the UK around the education system, which not only make it um, uh, allowable for Christian organisations to go into our schools from primary school from the age of four all the way to 16 and proselytise to children in religious education lessons. Um, it's actually a legal requirement to do so. And one of the laws says that there must be an act of daily Christian worship every morning in state-run schools. If they're not state-run schools, the government back in the Blair government allowed, uh, they called academies, which is really religious bodies, to set their own schools up where they can set their own curriculum. So these children get taught a specific form of uh, Christianity or Judaism or Islam. Uh, and uh, uh, a bigger proponent for sectarian uh, distrust in the community, I, I can't even imagine. So that's my reason for saying, well, hold on, you know, let's do some research on finding out whether this Jesus character did or didn't actually exist. Because Absolutely. at the end of the day, if he actually didn't exist, we can at least go to like the Church of England and say, look, the character didn't exist. The religious freedom and all that, all for that. But you really ought to extract yourself from the education system, from our government. Um, this is an interesting fact for people in America. There are only two countries in the world that have theocratic input into their lawmaking process, Iran and the United Kingdom. Oh, I was just going to say, I was, I was just going to really say, embarrassing. <laughs> the last anointing of the new, of the new, after the queen passed away, I'm, yeah. watch, I'm watching this, this, this coronation scene. Yeah. And it's completely theocratic. They're anointing oh, this new yeah. king as if he's a chosen by God. 
And I'm like, wait, this is 2023? We're still yeah, and the oil, like, the oil is coming from uh, Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, this is a religious ceremony in exactly in, yes. in, yeah. a, in a Western country. Yeah. Like, and I just remember yeah. thinking to myself, this is kind of odd. This is a tra- yeah, this, yeah, is, yeah. this seems like a tradition that's not going away anytime soon. And so we should be skeptic. We should be exploring these things. And the last thing I want to say before I let you completely take it away, and I won't cut you off anymore, I just want to say like a lot of people think I'm um, I'm biased against mythicists because I did some I did some videos on critical of Carrier and others, and I'm actually not. If if somebody legitimately doesn't think this person existed based off their historical research, based on what they know and what they're looking at, and they're honestly just saying I don't think he existed. I can't, I can't take that away from you. Like, that's what you think. I'm not going to say you're dumb. You're, you're wrong. You're wrong. Like, it's not that big of a deal. At the end of the day, I'm not biased against people who have been this. My whole problem was that people who are in that camp tried to set conspiracy theories against academics. And uh, I, I don't see you as one yeah. of those people that do that. So, yeah, let's get into it. Cool. I mean, that, that gives me an opportunity as well to, to set out uh, another criteria. Is it my, my, argument is the the Jesus that is preached to all the children in in the United Kingdom is the Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, that specific Jesus. And it's that specific Jesus my research um, uh, aims at. So unlike Carrier's version of the minimalist Jesus, I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at the the Gospel of Mark Jesus that is, is proselytized to children in schools in the United Kingdom. Um, and interesting, you you say, uh, Richard Carrier. I, I, I'd like to take the opportunity, actually, to make a challenge to Richard Carrier while we're here. Sure. Um, back in 2019, uh, Richard, he doesn't know me. I, I didn't know him at the time, made a, a statement on his blog. Uh, Michael Lawrence is an amateur with no relevant qualifications who makes many implausible claims, so I wouldn't count on anything he says. Well, Okay, I've got thick skin, <laughs> and everybody's entitled to their point of view. But what I would say to Richard now, just to, to, in the interest of fair play, allow me to make a challenge to you. I would argue to you that in this uh, subject matter, you do not need any qualification in history to be able to read the translated extant documents and form a view on what they're saying and present that view. And the fact that you do not have a qualification in history doesn't make that view um, unqualified. It's still a valid point of view based on your reading of the documents. If you have a PhD in ancient history and you've read these documents, and I take my hat off to you, if you can read ancient Greek, fine. And then you come up with a point of view, the fact that you have a PhD doesn't make that point of view orthodox. It's right. still your point of view. Well, okay? what's funny so, What's funny about that is that he, the criticism he has from people who are critical of him, for example, mm-hmm. they'll say, you're not a Bible scholar. You're not qualified to touch this Bible stuff. And he'll yeah. say, that's not an argument. That's not an argument. Deal, deal with my arguments. But then turn around yes. and do the same thing to you. It's like, what? This, yeah. You're doing the same and thing this- that you're claiming that everyone's doing to you someone else like deal, yeah. with, deal with the arguments i might not agree with your i might not agree with your thesis but let's deal with the arguments that's not yeah you know what i mean cool. so yeah i agree with that and, that, and that's exactly what i do want to say to richard um 
I'm going to make a statement now on First Clement. Don't attack my lack of qualifications in history. Deal with what it is I'm just about to say. And what I'd like to know is, no base theorem or probability or possibility, can you come up with a statement which categorically demonstrates that what I'm about to put over in the next 10 minutes is incorrect? That, that's that's my challenge to Richard. And I'm saying that you do not need uh, a degree in history of any form to be able to demonstrate that there were communities worshipping a dying and rising demigod that they called Jesus outside of Jerusalem before 30 Common Era. And I'm just going to take five minutes to put that case over with the first, first epistle of Clement. Sure. So for the viewers, if they're not familiar with the first epistle of Clement, it's a letter written from a community in Rome who worship a, a god they call Jesus to a community in Corinth in Greece who also worship this same god. And I read this first in 2009, J.B. Lightfoot's translation of it and then other translations. And prior to reading it, I hadn't looked at any scholar's review of this work. I wanted to read this document, as I've read all the other extant documents, completely void of anybody's view on them, so that the, the view that came out the end wasn't was mine and wasn't tainted by anyone else. And I also knew before I started reading it that the consensus view was that this letter was written 96 Common Era. And on the first read of the letter, I instantly concluded that that's bull. There is no way the letter was written as late as 96 Common Era. And the first point that, that comes to light in coming to that conclusion is that the, the author of the letter, uh, who isn't Clement, by the way, is completely anonymous. It doesn't state who wrote the letter. Right. Is talking about activity in the temple in Jerusalem in a positive fashion, in an enthusiastic fashion, and in the present tense. And he's writing from Rome. And we know uh, from history that the temple in Rome and, uh, sorry, big pardon, the temple in Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself was completely destroyed in 70 Common Era by Titus. We also know that Titus had a victory parade in Rome through the Forum in 71 Common Era, culminated with the sacrifice of Jewish captives on Capitoline Hill as, as the, the end celebration. And the Arch of Titus, I think that was built in 86, depicts these scenes on the inside. So my argument there would be there is no way that a Christian writing from Rome in 96 Common Era would not be aware that the temple had already been destroyed and had been for 26 years. The reason our author doesn't know that is because he's not writing in 96. He's writing, he's definitely writing before the parade in 71. He's writing before 70. And I, I back that up with saying that he's not writing on 70. He's writing at unspe some unspecified time before 70. We don't know how long that is, but before 70. So that's my first point. Without any history degree, I would say to Richard, am I right or am I wrong? And I happen to know that um, Richard's changed his view on this because in uh, 2000, he wrote a paper or did a blog of the formation of the New Testament canon. And at that time, he said uh, the first epistle of Clement of Rome reasonably dated to 95, 96. That was Richard's view then. 
By the time we get to 2014 and he's written on the historicity of Jesus, that view has changed and he has come to the conclusion there that it's probably 370. And then last year in 2022, he wrote a blog saying, how can we know one Clement was actually written in the 60s? His view there, and actually I would agree with him, is that it was written before the start of the Jewish war. I agree with that, but that's now Richard's view. But I'd just like to point out that his view has changed from 95, the common era, down to before, before 65. Hmm. So I'd like to now date the the group that wrote this letter and i'll start with the fact that i'll say to to christianity in general i'll i'll be generous with you let's say this letter was written at 70. it was clearly written before but let's say it's written at 70. in the letter in chapter 63 it says we have sent envoys to you whose lives among us have been uh, beyond reproach from youth to old age which is an interesting comment because what they're saying is th these people have been a member of our group a long time. Or in other words, our group has existed for a certain amount of time at the time of writing the letter. Uh, there are many studies that have been done on life expectancy in ancient Rome. Uh, one in particular, Karen Cocaine, I hope I pronounced that right, 2013, experiencing old age in ancient Rome. And the conclusion of that report is that if a person lived beyond the year of 10, uh, and clearly these envoys are, are older than 10, then their average life expectancy would be 47. That's average life expectancy. So old age would be 47 or more. So again, let's be fair to Christianity and, and go as slim as we can here. Let's say these people, these envoys were 45. Then it says they've been with us from youth to old age. Well, it doesn't say birth, it says youth. It might mean birth, but it says youth. So again, let's be generous and say they're saying from five to 45. That's being very generous. Now they're saying that these people have been with us, our group, for 40 years. Fine, so the letter's written on 70 or before 70. The people that they're going to send to Corinth with the letter have been with the group for 40 years, so the group has existed for 40 years. So 70 minus 40 is 30 common era. And if the Gospel of Mark is factual biography, how on earth can we have a group following a dying and rising demigod that they call Jesus in Corinth in 30 common era? But the first epistle of Clement does place that situation in place. And it gets a little worse. They then refer to the group that they're sending the letter to in Corinth, the most steadfast and ancient church of the Corinthians. And again, I've been lambasted on uh, picking up on the word ancient with people saying, oh, you know, we don't know what they meant by ancient. It might just be five years to them. It's a long time to us. And OK, I'd agree with that. But one thing it does mean is the group from Rome are calling the group in Corinth ancient, or in other words, and you are older than us. So we've been in existence since 30 common era, and you've been in existence even longer. So now we're going well beyond. And don't forget, I was being generous with 70 because the letter was written well before 70. And I've been generous with saying, oh, they were five years old to 45, not they were zero to 45. So I pulled this time frame down in favor of Christianity, and we've still got two groups 
worshipping a dying and rising demigod that they refer to as Jesus outside of Jerusalem before 30 Common Era. So there's my challenge to Richard. Please respond with not base theorem and probabilities with a statement that says, oh, you can't be right there because. And we'll see where we go from there. Let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. um, what makes you so, uh, what what is it that you're reading in the in these epistles that indicate that this is before 30 the longevity that they actually express the longevity of the group their own group they've expressed it in the letter they they've expressed that they are at least one generation in existence inside the text of the letter they're clearly writing before 70 because they're totally unaware of the culmination of, of the war and they're writing from Rome. So they're writing before 70 and they're stating themselves inside the letter that they are a, a group that is at least one generation already by saying that uh, we are sending you envoys whose lives here among us have been irreproachable from youth to old age. They've been with the, the group their entire life. That's one lifetime. Now, is there... A can, I should have been prepared. Is, is there a way we can show this? Like we can look at the, pull it up on the screen and look at the text where it's, is there like what, I could probably pull up a PDF of, is it First Clement you're talking about? Yeah, I've got um, the actual uh, word is chapter, chapter 63.3. And we have also sent faithful and prudent men that have walked among us from youth until old age blamelessly, who shall also be witness between you and us. That's who the group in Rome are sending to the group in Corinth. So they've been with the group in Rome their entire life. That's one lifetime. Okay. What verse did you say it was? It's 63.3. Oh, wait down. All right. Let's take a look. This is interesting. I, 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 as you know, I enjoy this type mm -hmm. of stuff. I, I love digging into the text mm -hmm. and just hearing people out. Let's see. 63.3, you said? Yeah. Okay. And now you might. Oh, you have got a 63 there. That's good. I've got and an interesting fact to tell you in a moment on that. Okay. So there you go. Also sent faithful and prudent men that have walked among us from youth unto old age, unblameably, who shall also be witnesses between you and us. Huh. Okay. Now, ready for uh, an interesting fact. So that, that's my sort of comment to Richard Carrier, and, that, and that's how hopefully he'll respond. But let's now get interesting. So this is a, uh, a translation of that epistle by J.B. Lightfoot. And there's more than one uh, ma extant manuscript in existence, but this is his synopsis of the manuscript that he had. He gets to chapter 57 and then says, here a leaf of the manuscript is torn out not missing, torn out, yeah, and then finishes with, I think it's what would be their chapter 70-something. Uh, so that whole chapter there from 60 to 64 in the uh, extant document that J.B. Lightfoot worked from was torn out and thrown away, probably because of that comment about we have sent envoys to you like you has been from yeah, irreproachable from youth to old age. When you come to referring to the the temple, uh, sorry, beg your pardon, the the group in Corinth as ancient, 
Now, the word is there, I can't pronounce it in Greek, but this is the original documentation, and it, uh, I translated it a word at a time, and it does say, and ancient church of Corinth. So the manuscript that J.B. Lightfoot had did have the word ancient in, but he translates it as um, solely the fair name of the Corinthian church. He completely omits the word ancient in his translation. In his footnotes, he puts, this epithet seems hardly consistent with the very early date which some critics would assign to Clement, or in other words, blimey, that's a problematic word. I'm not even going to translate it because it's saying that the Corinthian church is older than the Roman church, and we can already see that the Roman church had been in existence for one generation at the time they wrote the letter, and we know from the fact that they, they talk about the temple in the present tense and enthusiastically that the letter must have been written before 70. All of that information concludes to, as I said, a Christian group in Rome and a Christian group in Corinth worshipping a version of a Jesus Christ before 30 Common Era. And for me, that's that's not a probability uh, proposition or there's a one in three chance. Because that, that's a slam dunk. The Gospel of Mark is now, with this document, proven to be uh, plagiarised fiction. And what is it plagiarizing? What it's actually doing is taking these versions of a Christ and personifying them and placing them in a specific time in history. That's what the Gospel of Mark is doing. Because if you read the first epistle of Clement from front to back, the only thing it says about Jesus is our Lord Jesus Christ died and resurrected for our sins. That's it. There's no Jesus story. There's no time frame. They don't say when this happened, where it happened, who was responsible. That's all it says. And it's written before 70. You find exactly the same with the epistle of Barnabas. The only thing the epistle of Barnabas says is our Lord Jesus Christ, who died and resurrected for our sins. No story. Again, incorrectly dated and written before 70. Something happens. A major event happens. The temple gets destroyed. Uh, and uh, Rome sacked Jerusalem. And that was the impetus for writing the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is that this is now I'm now I'm in my supposition. Yeah, this isn't necessarily what I believe is factual. This is what I believe has happened. The, the Clement bit, I believe, is factual. And the fact that the Gospel of Mark is fiction, I believe, is factual. Now I'm speculating on why it is I believe the Gospel of Mark was written. And it was written in response to the loss of the temple and the loss of the altar where they would sacrifice the animals for forgiveness of sins. It's basically saying it's a, it's a new theology and it's saying, don't worry, um, there is a new sin forgiveness process. Jesus is the replacement for the temple. It's, it's a once and for all sin process. Jews couldn't publicly... Uh, do animal sacrifice for sin forgiveness after the war because the Romans were, they put a real punishing taxation on the Jews uh, as punishment for the war. So most Jewish people were looking to distance themselves from being Jewish to escape the, the, the um, persecution, the bad treatment, the persecution, yeah, and to escape the taxes. So they write a new theology. But you can imagine their mindset, they're thinking, God can't be wrong. God is God. So we must have done something wrong to upset God. Right. Yeah? So 
they come up with the concept of he did send his beloved. And if you read the Ascension of Isaiah and if you read the uh, Clement, you know, it's all mythical. Yeah. Okay? He did send this person, really sent this person. This is where they're going to personify these myths and place him on the ground with a full-blown story. Post-70 common era, they're writing this about something that's supposed to have happened in 30. He's now this this Jesus character now has a full speaking role. And it's interesting at this point to point out that this is the same for Paul. All of Paul's seven uh, authenticated letters, there's no story of Jesus, none none whatsoever. That doesn't appear until this Gospel of Mark is written. Okay. So go ahead, keep continuing. I don't want to keep so literally the the gospel of mark is a response to the temple being destroyed it's uh going back to writing scripture and coming up with a theological explanation as to why that happened and my book 70 is where i get into the how suspicious it is the way they've placed this character so so first of all we need to establish that these scripture writers back in the day, they were absolutely besotted with the number 40 and the 70. Now, there are arguments as to why, but they're irrelevant. It's sufficient to show that they were besotted. So, I mean, just there's some instances of using the term 40. You know, so you've got uh, rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. The spies were sent by Moses to explore the land of Canaan for 40 days. I'm just reading something at random here. At the end of 40 days and 40 nights, blah, blah, blah. They loved the number 40. Did they like the number 70? Wow, did they like the number 70. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamax, 70 and sevenfold. Um, And the Lord said unto Moses, gather unto me 70 men of the elders. Uh, Your land will be desolate for 70 years. You know, loads of instances of 70. They loved 70 and they loved 40. So where are they going to place this Jesus character? Well, collectively, I'll say collectively, because it's easy to attack my arguments here and say, well, in the gospel of the market, it's not specific. But, but collectively, the four gospels absolutely place the Jesus character being crucified 40 years before the fall of the temple and being born 70 years before the fall of the temple, hence the title of my book, 70. And when you can say, well, we know it's a fictional character because we can place uh, people worshipping a Jesus character prior to 30 Common Era outside of Jerusalem. So this is a personification of myth. And then you look at how besotted they are with the numbers 40 and 70 and see when this Jesus has been placed in history it becomes pretty evident what, what's actually happened. Now, I actually uh, agree with what you're saying there. That doesn't mean to say there wasn't some guy who was going around preaching love and forgiveness and he did get crucified. My argument to the world is this guy, sorry, not this, this is in the Bible, but the guy in the Gospel of Mark, which is replicated in Matthew and Luke, and then John, that guy didn't exist. That is fiction. Um, Interesting. Now, wow, that's very, uh, the, the, the timeline, I see what you're saying here, 40, 70, 40 years in the wilderness. Why do you think, why do you think they would place his birth at the end of the reign of Herod, who was, bur- who was four years before the common era? Do you think, they is it a mistake maybe? Well, yeah, is that- yeah, well, 
that where you the uh, that one is in that's Matthew, isn't it? Yeah. yeah the, well, there are t there's a couple of camps on uh, when Herod died, uh, scholarly camps. Uh, 4 BCE obviously is one of them, but there are some pretty good arguments from other camps that state that uh, the the timeline in Josephus, this guy here, <laughs> showing that, excuse me, I just dropped the marker, it's more likely that Herod died in 1 BCE. Now, I don't know whether that is or that isn't relevant. I mean, 1 BCE obviously fits what I'm saying perfectly. So I it would be um, bias of me to say I, I happen to go with the 1 BCE camp rather than the 4 BCE camp. But it is the case, if you do read both arguments, the 1 BCE death is far more convincing than the 4 BCE death. Well, do you th uh, just up steel man for you for a second. I want to hear you <laughs> out on this. Do you think it's possible that they thought he died? If they thought that Herod died 70 years before the, like the writer of Matthew thought that Herod died right at third, exactly 70 years. Maybe he got yeah. it mistaken. Yeah, that, that, that was a point I was actually coming to. It's all when Herod actually died is largely irrelevant. What is relevant is when did the, the author of the book of Matthew perceive that he died? Right. That, and, and we actually don't know that. He's just he's put Herod in there. But we also shouldn't um, uh, forget or, or ignore why that birth narrative is in there. So the first gospel is Mark, and it's very esoteric. It, 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 we can come to why that reference is 70 in a moment, but it, it, there's no specific, uh, specific explicit dating there. But the problem is it starts with Jesus fully grown. And he's in uh, Nazareth, and he ends up in Jerusalem. When we get to the the spin-offs or, or the copies of this, uh, Luke and Matthew, they're, they're basically, their thought process is, hold on, we've got a problem here. We, we like the story, but the Messiah's got to come from Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says, out, out of you, Bethlehem, will come for us, one will be ruler over Israel. So if he's going to be the Messiah, he's got to have come from Bethlehem, not narrative, uh, Nazareth. That's why they wrote the two birth narratives. Now, they've done it independently, and they've come up with two completely different birth narratives, but both the birth narratives have the child in Bethlehem and then go to Nazareth. Why, why, what's, why even include Nazareth at all, then? Because Mark did. Mark wrote the first gospel. That's what I'm saying. Why would Mark even include Nazareth at all? What's the point of that? Well, we, we don't have the ability to know that, do we? I mean, he's just sure. that, that's where he started it. I suppose he starts in Nazareth and he, and he works his way down to Jerusalem and he's crucified in Jerusalem because the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. So he's going to die and resurrect in Jerusalem. But my, and, and why Mark did that, who knows? But well, that's and that's the question. Do you think it's plausible that Mark is drawing from a guy who lived in that? Like, you know, and that's what I, that's yeah, my, my first yes. my first thought is these extra details seem like something's going. These these random details of Nazareth and Herod, mm -hmm. like, well, Herod, not Herod, but like you know what I mean. That makes you think there's yeah. something there. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely, we know there were loads of, I'm the Messiah, come follow me, and they got killed. And probably some of them were called Jesus, and probably some of them were living in in different decades and in different areas. 
And Mark, without a doubt, Mark's intention is to personify the myths that already existed about this Jesus Christ. Don't forget that the, the myths are quite specific, particularly when you come to the ascension of Isaiah. They have replicated the idea of what's supposed to have happened in the heavens on earth in a story. So, so I, I would maintain that the life history of the Jesus in this book is complete fiction. But I would agree with you that maybe Mark's saying, well, there were some guys up in Nazareth that were uh, saying a few things and, and come you, foul you, you had, and that, Judas that, that could have happened. Yeah. Judas Miguel is one, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you have this, the idea that Jesus, we know Jesus was a pretty common name at this time. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But it's also title. It's also it's savior. savior, healer, those type. Like exactly. The, the, the Greek word Jason is connected in, in, uh, to yep. Joshua in Hebrew. Yep. It's sort of cognated in, in, in a way that they both mean savior, healer, you know, that that type of uh, etymology. Yeah. Um, so that's. And, and I argue in the book that these, uh, these, uh, the first epistle, sorry, the, the group in Rome, the group in Corinth, and the people who are wrote the ascension of isaiah that's why their character is jesus because it's not a name it's a title so it, it morphs into a name but it starts as a title savior yeah the savior christ who died and resurrected for our sins okay so let me ask you this then the the text the text for example in ascension of isaiah or like revelation all these texts that are very yeah very dreamlike mythology they're they're, they're obviously sim symbolism has, is going on here but yeah. they're drawing from like 666 being nero for example he's up nero's obviously not really a dragon or a beast he's a person but they portray him as this demon devil character the the beast 666 yeah and my, and my question is why not why couldn't jesus be heavily mythologized but also be based off someone in history like like nero well for me because you you've already get the, the reason the the jesus that we're talking about in the gospel of mark is uh, a personification of the myth is because we can show through the first epistle of clement that people were already believing in a jesus outside of jerusalem and they don't say their jesus was killed in jerusalem they don't say where he was killed at all just that he was jesus and he died and resurrected for our sins so the it, it can progress down the lines that you've said after the initial books written but that's not the in my mind that's not the impetus for writing the book the impetus for writing the book is to explain away why yahweh has just allowed the romans to destroy jerusalem defeat us and uh, destroy the temple let me let me let me jump in here and uh steel man for you a second another time yeah. so because you can't deny that the character of jesus in the gospels is drawing heavily from old testament motifs for example yes, yeah. isaiah's suffering servant yeah and in, in isaiah the suffering servant is israel and mm -hmm. in, in, in the new testament it's almost as if israel is being personified the everything from the old testament is being put onto a character and this character is being crucified and killed the sort of similar in the way that jerusalem is destroyed by rome yeah is that what you're getting at uh, yes because the gospel of mark is pulling from uh jesus crucified in the in the heavens mythology 
It's borrowing from Homer. It's borrowing from the Old Testament. And this is how it's constructed its story. And then it's used the, the fascination with the numbers 40 and 70 to place that character that they've created in history. So they personified the mythical Jesus, but they've used all this other literature to create the story. As you say, uh, Israel will suffer for our sins. There's also a bit about um, they cast lots for my vestments and dogs. Uh, that, that's in Isaiah as well, or in one of the Psalms. That's repeated in, in, in the Gospels. So, yeah, we know they're using the, the Iliad. They're using the Odyssey. They're using um, the Old Testament, Septuagint, Messiah prophecies. And they're using these what I'm calling the pre-existing versions of a mythical Jesus. Okay. And putting that all in the mix and coming up with their story, which is the, the whole point of the story is a theological explanation as to why the temple's been destroyed and a replacement sin forgiveness process in the absence of the temple and the temple altar to go forward with. It's interesting. Now, this is going to be the biggest uh, hurdle, I think, in your in your thesis is that why why or crucifixion why Pilate? why what is what it seems to be and, and you see and like josephus relates the story in the 90s yeah. uh what is your thoughts on all that right the the why Pilate in mark mark's first mark doesn't give us a time frame but he does say in one of one of his verses and this is where I get lambasted quite a bit, but I'm pretty, you know, just be a little bit more open minded. Yeah. He doesn't give us a specific time frame. He gives us an esoteric, cryptic clue onto what he's he's doing. He says, um, when he's talking about the 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 part that tells us it was written after seventy is uh, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then everyone in Judea must run to the hills. So it's to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's written after Jerusalem, but it's written like a prophecy in 30. But there's only other, one other place in all extant um, theological literature where you get the phrase abomination of desolation. And it's to do with Antiochus IV, I think it is, who, who, who desecrated the, the temple. Yeah. And it appears, the first time it appears, it's three times in all, the first time it appears is in Daniel chapter 9. And it's in the 70-year prophecy destruction chapter. Now, Daniel himself is reinterpreting the 70-year prophecy of Jeremiah. So he said Jeremiah had a reason for writing a 70-year prophecy. Well, Daniel is just taking that, whoever wrote Daniel, uh, and reapplying that to the uh, tragedy that's just happened to uh, the Jewish people from the Seleucids. I think they were Antiochus, yeah? yeah. Well, all Mark is doing is now regenerating that again. But in his, like, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, and then carries on his sentence, he's saying to the people reading the book, you go and read where you saw that before, then you'll understand the theological, esoteric nature of what I'm writing. I'm writing a book based on the 70-year destruction prophecy. Therefore, we're going to have the main character killed 70 years sorry born 70 years before the temple's destroyed and basically killed 40 years before at the age of 30 so why pilot well you've got to do the maths haven't you 
if that's the case, if that's when you want him crucified in the, I believe that will be the 17th year of uh, Tiberius under Pontius Pilate, it's got to be Pontius Pilate. So he's done his, he's done his homework. He said, well, if I'm going to, this is how I'm going to portray this. I need to know who was the Roman prefect, who was in charge in Judea at the time, because that's the person I need to put into my story. And that's why he's put him there. All right, let me pull something up real quick. So in Daniel 9, verse 2 says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the sacred books, according to the word of Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So this is where you're drawing this from. Yeah, and in that chapter, you get the abomination of desolation uh, phrase. And that in itself is a regurgitation of Jeremiah's 70-year desolation prophecy. Your land will be desolate for 70 years. I think he said something like that in Jeremiah. But in that chapter 9, you will find abomination of desolation. And so you think that the gospel writers were saying the Messiah had to come 70 years. Isn't there another passage that the Messiah will be cut down in 70 weeks or something? Drawing this off the top, of my head. I'm sure it would involve the number seventy. Uh, just yeah. another interesting point. I mean, you, when we come to the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, the the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in five eight six BCE. Guess when the second temple dedication was? In the sixth year of Darius, five sixteen BCE. Seventy years later. Wow, that number. Yeah, I mean, Wait, we know. Say that, that one more time. Say that one more time. Um, the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BCE. I think it's the book of, well, I can't remember which book it's in, but they, the dedication of the new temple was in the sixth year of King Darius. Well, if you research the sixth year of King Darius, that's 516 BCE. Take the two away from that, so it's 70 years later is the dedication. Now, it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and Darius did give permission to rebuild it. But to make it exactly 70 years from destruction to the new temple being um, opened up, if you like, the opening up ceremony, that, that's just uh, fantasy scripture writing. It probably happened at some stage in, in the reign of Darius, but not exactly 70 years. But you get the same in Islam. Uh, there's exact, exactly 70 years from the Hijra. And the building of the Dome of the Rock. Which yeah. Is just let, me, a, let me just go back to this real quick because this, this is interesting. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for antiquity and to bring <laughs> everlasting righteousness and seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Then it says, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut <laughs> off not for himself and for the people shall come to destroy the city. All right. So what's that? Three score in two weeks would be. Well, three uh, score in 60, isn't it? In two weeks. Yeah. That's interesting. So you think this is what they're looking at. They're, they're making mythology off of these numbers. Now we know that originally this text was meant for Onias. <laughs> there was a high priest named Onias who was killed in whatever year, I can't remember which year it was, but uh third century or something BCE, I think it was second century BCE. Anyways, it was they they lined it up. Daniel's not really written in the time of uh Cyrus, like it claims yeah. to be. Daniel's really written way later in the time of this high priest Onias. And so they're trying yeah. to they're backdating themselves and saying that this yeah. is this is our prophecy. Oh, look, it happened. 
Like, okay, Exa no. yes, yes, reverse prophecy fulfillment, which is which, exactly that. That's what Mark is. Reverse prophecy fulfillment. We're just uh, making. That's what I'm getting at. You're saying they're doing yeah. the same thing here. I get yeah. what you're saying. They're just regurgitating that process. Yes. It is interesting, though. I'm not going to lie that the numbers do line up. Now, what about 40? Why, why, why not have the Messiah die in the year one? Not why, why and then 70 years waiting. What? Why not? I mean, what, just, what's, so, what's so important about 40? Well, 40. I, I what? So I've got a view on why 40 is. Um, That's what I want to uh, important. Okay. Well, we know why 70 is important. 70 sure. is a great day. It, it, that's how long it takes the spring spring equinox sunrise to move one degree, one of the 360 degrees on the horizon. It takes takes 71.6 years, but they wouldn't have known that, but they would have known it took 70 years, 70 um, solar years, 72 lunar years. And in, interestingly enough, 70 and 72 are used interchangeably depending on which uh, culture's literature you're reading. So that's 70, and that's easy to, to work out. 40, well, they, they were absolutely besotted with the number seven. We know that. And, the, and the, where they get seven from is the seven visible heavenly spheres. So it's the sun, the moon, Jupiter, Mars, Saturn, uh, I can't remember, the seven visible planets, five visible planets and the sun and the moon. That's where they got seven from. And they they divided things up into lots of seven. I believe it's called a heptamond, if I've pronounced that correctly. Now, if the idea of theology is to link the human soul with the cosmos, this is me speculating, by the way, yeah, you can say, well, okay, it takes 40 heptamonds to produce a human. So there is a, a cosmological number that can be used to link the production of a human with the cosmos. It takes 40 heptamons for the uh, gestation period for a human. That's just me guessing. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter why they were besotted with the number 40. We know they were. Me, that's just a bit of speculation on perhaps why they were besotted with 40. And like it, it I takes something. I just thought of something. Mm -hmm. 40 years in the wilderness, right? That's it seems for to be the birth a, of a nation. The Messiah comes, you're with the Messiah, everything's good. Messiah mm -hmm. dies, now you're in the wilderness for 40 years. Then maybe maybe they're looking at it like that. I'm just you know, I'm just throwing ideas out there, trying to manage. Yeah, yeah. For some no. yes, exactly. For some reason they decided uh, well okay, well the temp we know the temple was destroyed in the second year of Vespasian. That's how they would have viewed it. They wouldn't have said in 70 common era. Right, we'll we'll have the Messiah, we kill the Messiah, and 40 years later we'll be punished for it. So the Messiah is killed 40 years before the temple. Well, when was he born? Well, we love 70. So we'll have him being born 70 years. So in that case, then he would have been 30 years old when he was crucified. Yeah, we'll go with that. Well, that, that sounds good. Stick it that's in. <laughs> now, I think it's all, I think that's all very interesting. Now, I just, my own, my questions would be what, like, for example, the Talmud, uh, and not just Talmud, like Celsus, for example, in the second century, he, he, his sources are telling him, he's citing sources that are saying Jesus had a biological father named Pantera. Yeah. And it seems to be that even the hostile sources, Celsus, the Jews, the Talmud, yeah. they all are pretty much are an agreement that there was a guy who existed. What do you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So there's a, a there's a human progression in everything, isn't there? So the Gospel of Mark is written, which changes the 
mythical version of a Christ into a, uh, a personification of a real Christ. We don't know what happens next. We do know that between uh, 70, when this the Gospel of Mark was written, and uh, prior to Constantine 325, there was a schism. We know that it's documented between different um, beliefs in Jesus. But right. they could have coalesced at some stage into everybody coming around to, well, we're worshipping a real Jesus, and they'd completely forgotten that there was ever a, a mythical Jesus. Well, Again, this is speculation. We don't know whether that sure. did or didn't happen, but it's possible. Okay, so that's interesting, because when we look, I don't know how much you've read into Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Justin yeah, Martin. Yeah, against, against the heresies, yeah. And they're describing very wide-ranging views of Christians. Some of them exactly. do. Some of them do get really close to mythicists. Some of them, the Noetians, for example, are pretty. There's very. There's a yeah. lot of groups that are very close to being. They're being like. Is the, they, they even think he existed? But it seems that they do. It seems that they all kind of agree that there was a guy, even if they thought yeah. he came as a that as a ghost. But he was still the historical events still happen. That's, yeah, that's but the don't, don't also the Also, don't forget that the only literature we have on this are the apologists in favor of a real Jesus by the Christians and the polemics against heretics by the Christians. Right, but why would yeah. they why would they hold off? Why would they what, 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 Well they're what, quite what? happy with they're quite happy with polemical polemical writings talking about oh your Jesus was a real man and this was his father. Happy with that. They wouldn't be happy with people writing polemics about and the actual documentation that show that there were people worshipping a mythical Christ, I would contain. Uh, and this is another area where cha uh, Carrier challenges me. I would contend that post-325, any such literature that demonstrated that there ever was worship of a mythical Christ would have been destroyed. Now, it's not supposition to say that. We know that. The, the Catholic well, Church post-325 tell us they burnt literature. Sure, but what's the difference between what's the difference between Irenaeus uh, well, refuting because, refuting a mythical Jesus versus refuting a Jesus who is completely yeah. different than what those Gospels are saying? Cool. If you are writing a polemic that's refuting a mythical Jesus that never existed on Earth, then you are saying that there are people that existed that worshipped a mythical Jesus that never existed on Earth. That's got to go. If you have a, a polemic that's challenging people that are saying, oh, well, yeah, Jesus existed, but he's not who you said, that's okay, we'll leave that. That's just a polemic against, we say this is what Jesus did, and you say that's what he did, but we're we're writing the polemic that's challenging your version, as uh, Celsus, uh, origin contra Celsus, the other way around, uh, origin contra Celsus, yeah, where... But what about the docetists? The docetists are yeah. And the dualists, there are dualists that, that uh, and they're in Irenaeus, the dualists that saying that there are two gods. And there's the good from the Palermo. <laughs> I used to be able to pronounce that. Palermo. Yeah. And there was um, the the offspring of Sophia who was rejected from the Palermo. I got yeah, it there. And it's the offspring of uh, Sophia that was rejected that took the chaos outside the perfect Palermo and turned it into a world. He's Yaldabaoth. And for the dualists, that is Yahweh. 
Right. And Jesus comes from the Palermo, sent by God to inform the the people on earth, you are worshipping the wrong God. You're right. worshipping Yahweh. He's the demiurge. When you when you do die, you will go back to the Palermo, to the real, the light, the good. And in those stories, there is no crucifixion scene at all. Jesus is sent from the uh, Palermo right. because he is the best of every all the aeons in the Palermo. But yeah, Irenaeus admits that there are people that, that are preaching that. But even then he says, and there was a Jesus walking. And you say this is what this Jesus was, but we say he was the Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. I can see that they wouldn't have a problem with that because they've got rid of the literature that actually says it, but kept their polemics against it. But like I said, they're all right with polemics that are, are challenging the existence of a real Jesus because they're just saying, you got it wrong. He's really the Jesus of Gospel Mark. But they wouldn't keep any polemics that might have been written that are challenging a thoroughly mythical Jesus. So I'm surprised the ascension of Isaiah exists, but let's not forget inside the ascension of Isaiah, someone's inserted a little pocket gospel, haven't they? You know, you've got, it's completely mythical. And then all of a sudden you've got Joseph, Mary, Jesus, and birth in, in, in a couple of paragraphs, and then it stops again. But in the ascension of Isaiah, it actually says that uh, the angel says to Isaiah that we are going to ascend through the, the firmament into a duplicate copy of the earth in the firmament, as on earth, so in the, above the firmament. It's a complete duplicate copy. And it says that this is a world that the flesh cannot see. I down, us down here, we can't see it. And later in the mythology, you have Jesus descending the seven levels to the firmament and being crucified by the agents of Satan. And the angel then says to uh, Isaiah, you have seen, i.e. the crucifixion, what no flesh has ever seen, what no man has ever seen. Well, that's completely mythical. So I'm surprised that that, that does exist, but with the, the caveat that someone's taken that text and stuck a little pocket gospel in there because they can see how problematic it is. I see what you're saying, but that's probably where we disagree. Is that I don't see I don't see the incentive on someone like Hippolytus or Irenaeus to to want to like oh they can't know about this one we got to delete it like I I, yeah. I I honestly think if that thing existed it'd be there um, but yeah. I mean, that's where the speculate, say I'm speculating there I, that's not sure. what I'm stating out that's what I'm speculating yeah you know I get I get where you're I get where you're coming from <laughs> um, I had a, uh, I was thinking of something um, oh. The, the next question is why where, 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 the Jews who know all this symbolism, they know all the numbers in 70 and 40. Where, where is their, how come they're not challenging and saying they didn't exist? We, we've been here the whole time. There's no Jesus. Instead, you kind of get, you get stories about followers of Jesus who are healing people in his name. This guy named jo or Jacob, who he healed somebody's snake bite in the name of Jesus. That's in the, that's in one of the Talmud stories. And so they're kind of they're kind of aligned with yeah there was a guy but he wasn't the Messiah. Well, are, are they aligned with that, or are they just jumping on the genre? Uh, and you know, <laughs> people say to you get quite a few people say oh well you know Paul says that Jesus appeared to the five thousand uh, five hundred. Paul says he heard Jesus talking to him in the sky. Paul's an absolute. <laughs> well, yeah. that, that brings us to another thing so so i get okay so we can just with the whatever the, if, if for some reason the 
any sources of the Jews that say he didn't exist. Maybe we lost him. Maybe that's true. Okay. Paul, let's go to Paul for a second. When Paul talks yeah. about, you're, you're, you're right in the sense that he gives us very little historical data on Jesus, but he does say some things. He says like on the night he was handed over. What does he, what do you think yeah. Paul meant by the night he was handed over? Uh, he was given up, I think. I mean, I don't know Greek, but I believe, and I, I'll go with Richard Carrier here because I've tried to research the word. He actually says he was given up on the night that he was given up, not handed over or delivered up. Oh, here it is right here. Okay. But, it's entu nukti a paradeto. On the night he was handed over, took a loaf of bread, gave thanks. So yeah. you have a Eucharist story in Exactly. Paul. Yeah, there's a Eucharist story in Paul, and that's where the Gospel of Mark Last Supper scene came from. We've got we're looking at this the wrong way round. Yeah, the the, where, the the Acts of the Apostles. What they're doing is they're hijacking Paul, placing him in Acts of the Apostles, and putting his letters in there to to claim him for their real Jesus. Paul isn't writing about a real Jesus. It's just the Acts of the Apostles claims he is. So they, their last supper scene, their full-blown last supper scene is derived from that. Now, that's just a Eucharist um, uh, scene. And that's so theology, isn't it? So mythical. Uh, Mithras had a Eucharist scene. Uh, I should imagine there were many other gods that had a, a Eucharist scene as well. So that's just a Eucharist scene for so you, Paul's you gods. You think that Paul is talking about a vision? That he had of something happening in the heavens. This is not. You don't think Paul? No. Isn't isn't this where Paul says uh, Jesus appeared to him as a, a vision and told him this stuff? Because he said, I, "I didn't get any of this stuff from any man. I got it direct from Jesus. Hmm. Jesus appeared to me and told me that." And then I think you get that that verse that you said there. Well, the people that have written Mark have just included that in their story and they've turned it into the Last Supper scene. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. That's that's another place where I would tend to disagree. I think that mm -hmm. he's, I think he's alluding to something that happened. I just don't like. I agree that he, he's he wasn't there, so we can't really. Mm -hmm. And I do agree that it's not. It's really just that's all that really we really have from Paul is a few yeah. a few well, drive by sentences like that. He was handed yeah. over. So I yeah. will, but I, but I but that's probably where we would disagree. I think he's talking about a historical mm -hmm. event. Which you don't. Mm -hmm. Fine, I, I respect your. And then you get in Paul. Then you get in Paul. Two Corinthians eleven fourteen. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach to you, another Jesus, or you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. That is Paul saying at the time that he wrote, whenever he wrote, and uh, I have a completely different view on this to Richard Carrier and many mythicists. I don't think he wrote in the 50s common era. I think he wrote a century earlier. But that aside, if we say, if we go with the consensus in 50 common era, Paul is saying yeah. people are going around preaching different Jesus characters. There and that, right there and then. And don't forget, Paul's Jesus has no story, no, no earthly story to it. So he's just, just a gospel. And he's saying, so I'm giving you a gospel of Jesus. And don't forget, my version came direct from Jesus himself. So you shouldn't listen to these other people. They're false. Well, you can bet your bottom dollar that the other people may be Bob saying exactly the same thing. Don't listen to what Paul's telling you. I've got my revelation direct from Jesus. But here's the interesting thing. Where are their 
epistles? Where's their gospels? We know they existed, but we don't have them. Well, that's what I was going to say. When he's talked about another gospel, he's talking about another message, another, and that's Good that news. word, that, their evangelion. That's, it's just yeah. like, if you got another message about what Jesus said or something, like it could, that could mean a lot of things. It, I'm not ready can. to say it could be, it, we don't know that it means like a myth about them. It could mean that, but I'm just saying it doesn't have to be that. But is Paul, of all of these people going around preaching different Jesuses, is Paul the only one that wrote about his Jesus? Did the other people not write about theirs? We don't know. If they did, where is that literature? Why is Paul's the only one that's been saved and sent down to us? Why didn't they save all of them and send them all down? It's like, we only want you to think of one. And don't forget, they didn't adopt Paul until they wrote Acts. Because, well, we've got a problem here. We, we and, and literally in uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, it's a case of no one alive today will um, all die before these events take place. A generation later, you've got a bit of a problem, haven't you? Well, they did all die. We're their children, and these events still haven't happened. Where, where's your theology now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? In comes Acts, a completely softer version. Oh, no, it will happen when you die, after you've died. But in the meantime, we, we carry on. The message changes completely when we get to Acts. And in Acts, that's where they adopt Paul. And they've been very, very careful. They've read Josephus. They know Paul in Galatians gives a timeline. And they've looked at the works of Josephus and said, well, clearly we want Paul to be in our story after 30. That was the crucifixion. Clearly we want him to be in the story before 70, that's when the temple was destroyed. So we've got to put him somewhere there. And there's one uh, passage in uh, um, Acts that says uh, Paul was pulled before uh, Gallio in Achaia. We now know, we didn't uh, for quite some time, but we now know that means he's in Achaia in, I think it was 51 Common Era. And when you then put that back over Paul's timeline in Galatians, that means the um, escape from Damascus scene is just after the war that was declared from Aratus IV on Herod and Tiberius ordering the governor of Syria to march south and um, either bring Aratus back to Rome in chains or kill him and bring his head back. So they know that they can't have the Damascus scene prior to that period. They need it just after in the period between um, Gaius Caligula becoming emperor and Aratus IV dying. They needed to place Paul right there. And that's exactly what they have done when they've said he stood in front of Gallio in Achaia. So in my, the way I'm looking at this is the, the Jesus that Paul is writing about is completely void of the Jesus that's written in, in the Gospels. But the people that wrote the Gospels uh, and their um, uh, successors, circa 150, wrote Acts and pulled Paul into the Gospels. And, and don't forget, at this time, we don't have a compilation, do we, called the, the New Testament. They're all just separate documents. Sure. Um, let me ask you about Josephus. What are you, because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you think there's a lot of interpolations happening. What are your thoughts on the Josephus? passage about jesus 
Oh, a testimonium flaminium. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I'm surprised that it is discussed. It's clearly interpolation. I mean, well, 137 well, words, I think it is. Consensus is that, the consensus is that it's there was probably something there, but it was heavily edited over time. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's a full total insertion. Yeah, and my, I mean, I need to give my reasons for that. I think sure. it was, like I said, there's about 137 words. And in 137 words, you get the full story. You get the, from start to finish. Josephus doesn't write about events like that. He, he He's quite boring. He goes on and on and on. It's something silly about putting some plaques to, um, who was it? Uh, Caligula in, in, in the temple. And, and the length of the explanation of, of that story, that, that's common, yeah? So for a start, he didn't write short snippets like that. Two, it gives us the entire story. And well, three... kind of does a little bit. He tells, yeah. he goes take, stories like John the Baptist, he talks about Judas, he talks about... He, he throws in some some random random characters here and there. He talks about a guy oh, no, who... He goes quite on quite a bit about John the Baptist, doesn't he? Because well, he oh, says that, he believes that... Let me, that. One, let me give you one more real quick. He, he talks about a guy randomly in the middle of nowhere. He tells you mm -hmm. a story about a guy who stole someone's identity, went to mm -hmm. Rome, got a big loan of a chest of gold, and went back to, and it's just random, some random guy that he has no place in history, but just, mm -hmm. just randomly tells you about him. Just, just tells you about him. Yeah. Uh, okay, I, I wouldn't dispute that, but I, I still, like, if you take the testimonium from Indium and you take it out, then 18.3.2, just flows straight into 18.3.4. When you read it without, when then when you read it back within, you think, what the hell is that doing in there? And well, it is actually in the passage that um, uh, talks about John the Baptist. And here is an interesting thing. Uh, yeah, um, origin against Celsus. He uses that particular chapter, chapter 18, to counter the the argument that Jesus was just a man uh, who did magic tricks, yeah. so he uses the John the Baptist, um, you know, the death of John the Baptist part in that chapter. You would have thought that if the copy of Josephus he had in whatever date that was, I can't remember, two fifty or something like that, he would have made a beeline for the testimonium Flavinium, but he doesn't go anywhere near it. He's, he doesn't mention it. And there are other areas in his work where he uses this chapter to refute some arguments. And again, he doesn't go anywhere near the testimony from him. It's as though the copy of Josephus he has doesn't contain it. All right, let's look at this for a second. I get, I get what you're saying, but I, I just, here's what I just want to show you what I think. So he talks, book 18 <laughs> starts off about Pilate. This is all about yeah. Pilate. All yep. the things that Pilate did, blah, 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 blah. Pilate, so just a point on that, if you were going to put an ins insertion in, that's the place to put it when exactly, you're talking about exactly. Pilate. So, yeah. so you can't, so, okay, I'm glad you mentioned that. So you can't say this is just randomly placed in a in a spot that doesn't exist, that doesn't fit. It does fit. You would at least admit that, right? But from that point of view, yeah. But but for that reason, if, if we're going to put this in, we need to find out when Joseph is talking about Pilate because that's where we need to put it in. Yeah. Right. But that's and that's 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 a good point. Is that you can't then you can't just say it's randomly placed because if it was randomly placed, it'd be somewhere else, not here. I'd concede that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All I'd right. Agree. 
And but here's another thing: the language says about this time, <laughs> a man named Jesus, a wise man, it'd be lawful to call him a man. Everyone knows this. But then he says, about this time also. What this is the first story he tells us. Why would he no, that, that actually that does follow on from eighteen point three point two, doesn't from it? Over here? From over here? Yeah, well, from well, the end of eighteen point three point two. If if you what? read the end of eighteen point three point two and then read the beginning of eighteen point three point four, it doesn't seem out of place. Well, no, here's as this is where I disagree with you because look, he says he's talking about Pilate. The first time he says about this time is about Jesus. So then he <laughs> says about this time also. There, why wouldn't you just say about? Oh, I see what I see. What you're getting there? Why would he say also? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, that's I don't disagree with that, but I, I do think that follows the passage beforehand. And you could argue that that's why they put. You could argue. I, I'm speculating. That's why they began that passage with about this time, because the the one they're sticking in above says about this time also. But yeah, I hold my hand up. That's all speculation. Yeah, sure, sure. And that and that's that's basically all I'm saying is like. But, if this passage exists, it would just start about this time. The mm -hmm. calamity put the Jews into disorder. If there was no reason to put also, unless you have a story yeah. that precedes it. That precedes That's it, yeah. But let, let's also bear in mind that in uh, the wars and in antiquities, Josephus gives us a rundown of all of the, well, you can't say all, of the ones that he wants to make us aware of, the religious movements in Jerusalem at the time. So he tells us quite a bit about the uh, Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes. And if the Gospel of Mark is to be believed, at that time, the Christian movement would have been quite a force. He tells us he is such worldwide fame, Jesus couldn't walk around without being a, he doesn't mention them. At all. Why, why didn't he include that group in that listing? But that's a good point right there. That's a really good point right there. <laughs> why not? Josephus is already writing all this stuff. Yeah. He's writing about the Essenes. He's writing about the Sadducees, the Pharisees. He mentions the Zealots. He gets and the zealots. He mentions the mm -hmm. Zealots. No, yeah. No Christians. And this is in the no 90s. This and this is, is in the 90s. And if you read the books of the Mark. The gospel of Mark telling us that it was worldwide, instant, you know, fame for this guy, and everybody started following him. Um, so, what am I going to mention? So. I'm going to admit that's a good point. I admit that's a great point. Where's the? Where's the? Where, yeah, sure, I get that. Um, anything? Anything else about anything? Any other thoughts on your thesis that we haven't discussed? Okay, this is the one that's really contentious, and I get a lot of flack over, and I have. I wouldn't say I've changed my view. I've expanded my view after rereading Antiquities, <clears throat> and that is the uh, the Epistle of Barnabas. That I've read, I think, in total about twenty different translations of the Temple Destruction scene, and every single one of them. So, so there's a load of different people interpreting this, and they all interpret it in different ways. But every one of them says what's happening is happening now. And what's happening now is the temple is being rebuilt. So the the dating model for this, well, for all um, theological works that mention works that mention Jesus is, well, they mention Jesus, so it must be post thirty, right? Because of the Gospel of Mark. So wrong, but that's the that's the starting premise. And yeah. then they say 
<clears throat> and it mentions the temple destruction. Well, clearly that must be the 70 common era destruction because that's after 30. Okay, but only if your first premise was correct. If your first premise is incorrect, then you've made an incorrect deduction. If the Gospel of Mark is totally fiction, then we have to look at all temple destruction and rebuild events, not just go for the 71 because that's after 30. But the interesting thing about the destruction in 70, there never was a rebuild. But that passage says that those that pulled this temple down shall rebuild it. The very thing which is actually in the process of fulfillment now, they're building it now in the present when the, the, the guy is writing. After 70, Jerusalem was desolate until Hadrian went back there in the 130, 135 uh, and built a temple to Jupiter. Now, they can't be talking about that because the Jews that built that temple would have been under no illusion that that was a temple to a pagan god. They wouldn't have thought, oh, we're building the temple to Yahweh again. So they're not talking about that. So they can't be talking about the 70 destruction. So that uh, back in 2010, my thoughts then was, well, when was the next uh, destruction and rebuild? And that was uh, the 586 destruction by Nebuchadnezzar and the 516 rebuild authorized by Darius. But I thought, well, okay, then, is there anything that precludes the Epistle of Barnabas, Barnabas from being written that late? And I know this is a big stretch, but in my defense, there actually isn't anything in that document that says it couldn't have been written then, other than people would say, well, we'd expect to see lots of documents. But then I reread Antiquities of the Jews, and I found out that Herod's restoration, according to Josephus, wasn't just a restoration. It was a complete demolition down to the foundations and a rebuild that Josephus is telling us that the Jews were very nervous about. You're going to demolish it and you're not going to have things in place ready to rebuild it. They didn't want it to happen. But it did happen. He demolished it in 19 Common Era and then immediately rebuilt it. Now, when you reread Barnabas again, it says, those who pulled this temple down shall rebuild it, the very thing which is in process of fulfillment now, because after their armed rebellion, it was destroyed by the enemies, and now they themselves will build it up again as subjects of their foemen. So does the rest of that fit? Well, actually, it does, doesn't it? Because there has just been a war between the Hasmoneans and the Herodians. Herod won. But there would have still been Hasmonean supporters in Jerusalem. So who is Herod using to carry out his demolition and his rebuild. If it's the Hasmoneans, then it fits quite nicely because you're saying those who pulled this temple down shall rebuild it and that they are subjects of their foemen. So the foemen could be the Herodians. This is all good, I'm saying, but that happened in 19 BCE. That now becomes much more probable to say, well, the, the epistle of Barnabas could easily have been written in 19 BCE. The consensus dates are that it was written after 70 and before 130. And when you read the document and you read history, that is completely impossible. Because after 70, the temple wasn't rebuilt by anybody and there wasn't anybody in Jerusalem anyway. It was desolate. It was uninhabited. So the, the, the consensus dating is clearly wrong. Can't, it can't, can't be after. Now, it wouldn't be later than 130. They couldn't be saying, oh, it's the Simon Carbot, Simon Barcotby revolt. Um, they tried to build another temple. Well, okay, then, then you have to say, in that case, and if it was written that late, why is it so completely void of any Jesus material? 
again, like all the other documents, all you get is Jesus was our Lord. He died and resurrected for our sins. That's all you've got. So if it was written as late as 135, uh, after the Simon Carbocopi revolt, or if some people have suggested, oh, they thought Hadrian was rebuilding the temple, why is it so void of that material? And that brings you back to, well, it can only then be the 19 BCE by Herod, demolition and reconstruction, or the 516 reconstruction. More likely, this is where I've changed my view over the last uh, five or six years, more likely the Herod one. But I, I don't see any reason why the Epistle of Barnabas can't be dated to the 19 BC, BCE. There's nothing in the document that precludes it from being uh, dated to that date. Interesting. Uh, we do have a couple of questions. Um, you know, we obviously already discussed where we disagree, but it's, you know, we're not going to, we're not yeah. to go much like duke that out right now. It's just, yeah. uh, thanks for joining the membership, Christine. I really appreciate that. Gaius Julius Windex says, do you think Jesus is a Jewish Osiris? Oh, uh, well, uh, okay. Osiris, this is where you get synergy. Uh, a man, Derek, um, not Derek Lambert. Oh, he's going to kill me. I've forgotten his surname. Uh, oh, Derek Bennett. Derek Bennett. Yeah. Derek Bennett. He's yeah. quite good on this. Here's some That's synergy. Good. Yeah. So, uh, you get, I, I believe Bart Ehrman is on record as saying that you know, there are no death and resurrections. Well, Osiris, the Plutarch gives us a death and resurrection of Osiris. Right. And That's the argument fact. is, well, Plutarch is mistaken. Well, I would respond with that. That doesn't matter. That the fact matter that he all. might be mistaken doesn't matter because that he wrote his, mistaken. Right. Yeah. He wrote that at exactly the same time that the Gospel of Mark was being written. So it was popular thought at the time and all that matters is that's what plutarch thought when he wrote that work and so he has a death and resurrection of osiris it, it, it goes deeper than that because uh, diodorus of sicily writes about osiris being dionysus they're the same god they're yeah. the egyptian yeah. osiris is the egyptian version of dionysus dionysus is the greek version of osiris and yeah. he relates that Dionysus or Osiris, whatever you want to call him, was twice born. That he was born as a baby, ripped apart by the Maenads, died, yeah. went down to Hades, and then came back up as a second born, born as yes. yeah. so Clearly, he's been resurrected. God, this is there's no. I, I think you, you don't know that. You just you you just you're just wrong. I don't think there's yeah, any yeah. other way to say that. Like I'm sorry. Like yeah. you'd hate to be. I just got to be blunt about that. Like. Dionysus and Osiris are dying and rising gods. Clearly, it's a, clearly, it's a, yeah. The source is and, and that that actually leads us on to Dennis McDonald and Mimesis, um, and the fact that the 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 Gospel of Mark is using Mimesis. So, actually, I don't know if it's in the. I can't remember which one it's in. The the wedding at Canaan. Which gospel is that in? It oh. turns water into wine. Oh but yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, where that comes from with Dionysus is it's, it's a regurgitation of all these, but saying, but our guy is actually better than your guy. He's, he's more, he does better tricks. He's well, done all your tricks, but but done them better. He's done them and some. So that's where Mimesis comes in, and there's a lot of that in the in the four gospels. Yeah, you get um, the, you get the idea where he's his feet are being anointed by the woman, whereas Odysseus's yep. feet are being anoint being rubbed exactly. by Eurocleia. Yeah. Your family yeah. go far and wide, and 
That's mm-hmm. what Jesus says to the woman. Your yep. name means faith. You have all these puns. Yeah, there's definitely it's. Yep. Here's the one thing that we can say for certain that the Gospels are mythology. They are. Yeah, yeah. And now, if you want to say there's his history, it's based mm-hmm. off of historical stuff. I agree with that too. But you have to at least admit that there's the Gospels are mythology. They're myths. They're legends. Yeah. Not. It's not a historical passage. Yeah. I mean, to me, this is probably where we disagree slightly. To me, they're not even sexed up biography. They're they're wholesale fiction. But I I take the point from people like yourself who said there's probably, who go with there's probably a man in there somewhere. But equally, I would say to the Church of England in the UK, who have this, this incredible right to preach to children, if you're going to say, oh, it's probably based on some guy, then you've already admitted that it's fiction. Because if it's based on some guy, then this guy in this book didn't exist. And this is the guy you are preaching to children and asking them to put their hands together and to speak to, you know. So yeah, that's where I, I why I'm so adamant that um, we, we establish whether this person actually existed rather than some Jesus character may have existed at some time, yeah. Interesting. Thanks for that question. Samantha Jennings, thank you for the super chat. Why did Jesus get arrested with the naked boy in Mark? This was if this was pure myth, why even include that? I get no idea. <laughs> okay, so he's referring to a, a video I did with another another uh, friend of mine, a scholar, who's a <laughs> classicist. And sure enough, in Mark 14, during yeah. the arrest scene, it says, and I can pull it up if you want, but I can just relate it to you. You just take my word for it. It says and then, and a a young boy ran mm-hmm. away with a sindone, which is a veal or like a wrapping, yeah. and he ran away naked. It fell off of him as he's running away. And it's and Samantha's making a good point here. Why why is that in there? That's a very yeah. weird detail to to include in the in the arrest narrative. Like, yeah, I mean it, 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 the story, and it's just like the details are random. It does. It, yeah, you you could. I mean, it's it's a fair point to say if if the details are so so um, detailed, is it myth or is there some truth in here? But <clears throat> uh, there is a difference. I, I put this in my book as well. There's a difference between writing a story, a pure fictional story, and writing a biography. And that is, the person that's writing a story can know the thought process of every person in every scene and where they are, even if the scenes are not related by these people, because he's making it up and he's writing a story. A person that's writing a biography cannot know that. He can only know that if he finds out. So if you take like a particular scene, which is very detailed, as you're saying here, that um, the uh, the guards take Jesus into the, the barracks. And then this is where they put the robe on him and they mock him and they, they say things to him. You know, you're the king of the Jews. You could come down off the go. And then we come out. You could, you could argue, well, how could a biographer possibly know that? As soon as he goes through the, the doors, that's it. The story has to end. Unless the biographer, writing post-70, managed to track down the, uh, the records office for the the military in Judea and say who was actually on duty that day 40 years later and if he possibly got their names finding out where it is they live now if you if they're alive and going and visit them and interviewing them that's the only way he could say what then happened and there are loads of scenes like that um 
is it uh, not Herod's wife? Someone's wife, the Pilate's wife calls the guard over while Jesus is being tried in front of Pilate and whispers into his ear. Oh, really? And we know what they whisper as well. How could a biographer possibly yeah. know that? But a person writing a story, he, he he's writing the story. He's making up as he goes along. He, he knows everything. Yeah, I get what you're saying. That's a good point. Fair point. Uh, that's it for Super Chats. Just a couple tonight. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. That's what happens sometimes. Um, thanks for everybody who's chilling out in the chat. 200 people. Uh, while, since there's 200 people here, I do want to, where did it go? I had your, oh, here it is. I do want to tell everyone that you got a book. Links in the description. It's only eight forty nine on Kindle, too. So uh, check it out. It's something to read if you uh, want to hear more or read more about your thesis. I recommend it. It's a pretty, it's, a, it's an interesting approach. Like I said, you admit right off the bat, look, look, I'm not an academic. I'm not fluent in Greek. I'm not fluent. But I've read these texts. I've read the translations. I Here's my opinion. And like, let's do Like, I, I appreciate that. I really do. And so I just want to let everyone know is that get the book, check out the book before you, uh, before you cast judgment first, you know, anything else you want to say? Uh, no, thank you for the opportunity this evening. That, that's, that's great. I'm very much appreciate it. And, um, yeah, if people get the book. It, it, it's exactly that. Um, I, I do maintain that we can prove there were versions of, of a Jesus before 30 common era. The 70 year reverse construction is a thesis which when you read it, you may agree with or you may not. But what I mainly want to do is to, to when the people read the book, is to enthuse them to go and get the original text themselves <clears throat> and read them themselves rather than say, oh, this is what Carrier tells me about that text and this is what Ehrman tells me or this is what Price tells me. Go and read them yourself and decide what you think they're saying. Sure. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. And you have just attained true gnosis. You have just attained 